My name is Cormac Harrigan Ray. This is a documentary looking at why people self-harm and commit suicide in prison and how being in prison affects mental health. Some listeners may find the subject matter distressing, so please be advised that this documentary will explore themes related to self-harm, sexual assault and suicide. In the last four years, there have been 1,512 reports of prisoners trying to harm themselves in Scottish prisons. I will look at what steps have been taken to support those with mental health conditions in prison and how effective these steps are. I was, in a, I was put in a position where I had to relive something that happened when I was 17 years of age while I was in prison when I was in the Boston in 1982. Stephen Roger was incarcerated at HMP Lomas between 2011 and 2016. Stephen has been involved with the criminal justice system throughout his life, having first been incarcerated in his youth at Palmont. It's in my mind constantly, but it's at the back of my mind because I know there's nothing I can do about it. No, it was actually a sexual assault that took place in the Boston. He struggles with a variety of mental health issues and has been treated for PTSD. He's actually a prison officer that done it. Now, dealing with that, it was a case that I'm never ever going to be back in that prison. However, during, during my, my period of prison of the five-year sentence, I was made to go back to Castle Huntley uh, in 2016, January 2016. And I tried everything in my power to no go to Castle Huntley because when I found out that I was getting put to Castle Huntley, it brought back the memories of what happened when I was 17 years of age. Suicide is always a very tragic event, whatever the circumstances, and something that people grieve and mourn about. And I guess in that situation, you're often thinking that someone has really decided life's not worth living. Alison McMullen is the chair of the Vision of Psychology Scotland. She treats ex-prisoners like Stephen, as well as other members of the public who suffer from a variety of psychological ailments. It's very easy for the general public to think that if someone harms themselves, it means they're trying to kill themselves. If you work in mental health, you often find the reality is very different. Often it's a way that they've learnt to calm themselves, or disconnect, or release, or punish themselves if they feel bad about themselves. And it's a coping strategy for intolerable stress and intolerable emotions. It's not a good coping strategy, it can be a very risky coping strategy. And there's occasions where, sadly, someone might actually kill themselves. And it just come out of the blue, you know, I, I didn't think I could have any more bad things happen to me. Michael O'Brien was in prison between 1987 and 1999. Things did get progressively worse, you know, and when I, my wife walked out on me as well after a daughter had died, I felt like I lost everything. I had no reason to live. And that's how I felt at the particular time. I was having a nervous breakdown and I didn't realise it at the time. But uh, I know in my head I was saying to the prison officer, if I could get my head together, don't you think I would? But I just couldn't get the words out. And two, two officers had to hold me up because I, I nearly collapsed due to all the, the stress. What was running through your head, if you can remember? I wanted to die. I wanted to hold uh, in the ground to just swallow me up and... You know, I just hoping that it would just all go away and this was just a dream, but it wasn't a dream. I did some investigation into mental health in Scottish prisons when it became apparent that annual prison reports didn't include data on self-harming or suicides. It effectively meant there was no publicly available data on self-harming and suicides on Scottish prisons. In England and Wales, prisons produce annual reports 
which indicate exactly what's going on. I received figures for recorded incidents of self-harm at 15 prisons across the country after submitting a freedom of information request. Although I specifically requested information on the number of recorded incidents of self-harm, the figures I received included threats to self-harm and suicide attempts, as well as cases in which harm occurred. But I did find that cases in which people try to hurt or kill themselves in prison has risen by over a third in the last four years, while the overall number of prisoners has fallen, according to the data released by the Scottish Prison Service. Official reports of actual attempted and threatened self-harming incidents in 15 Scottish prisons have increased to over 400 a year in the last two years, with sharp rises in the number of incidents involving women, as well as in particular prisons. The problem that we come across at Heritage Scotland quite frequently is that the data that is available uh, from whether it's the Scottish Government or the Prison Service is often it's either absent or it's quite poor when you compare it to the data that's available from the UK government or the Ministry of Justice on prisons in England and Wales. Lisa McKenzie is the Policy and Public Affairs Advisor of Howard League Scotland, a charity advocating for prison reform. There just isn't any data to show the state of the healthcare of prisoners in prison, so it's not possible to prove whether things have got better or worse. So if the prison service wanted to try and prove that outcomes, health outcomes have improved for prisoners, it's actually not possible to prove that right now. Liam MacArthur, the Liberal Democrat MSP for Orkney, has spoken about the issue of self-harm and suicide in Parliament and to the national press. It was Liam MacArthur, the Shadow Justice Minister, who made the claim in March of 2017 that there was a self-harm epidemic. I'm not sure if epidemic is a technical word. David Strang, Chief Inspector of Prisons in Scotland, has a unique perspective on the situation. What I would say is that any death, well, particularly death at someone's own hand, is, is an absolute tragedy. Well, as I say, all numbers are unacceptable. Any death is unacceptable. But what I wouldn't say is that any death is preventable. So if, you, if, you've, got, if you've got no indication and someone chooses to take their own life, if, if, if it wasn't reasonable for a nurse or a prison officer to have seen any symptoms, then, you know, in a sense, they're not culpable. It seems self-evident that locking people up and depriving them of their liberty may cause mental distress, but it is well documented that the number of people entering prison with pre-existing mental health conditions is high. It's well recognised that there's a very high level of mental health difficulties in people who are in prison. And for some of them, the stress is exacerbated by being in prison, by losing community links, losing their home, losing their identity, losing their relationships. They might get moved around a lot, they might be bullied or intimidated or frightened by the experience. We would know that many people in prison have a history of what, in psychology and psychological therapies generally, we would talk about complex trauma. The, many of these people would actually get a diagnosis of personality disorder. By complex trauma we mean they've had repeated trauma experiences beginning in childhood around things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, and they've had repeated trauma experiences in their lives. That means there's problems around emotional regulation, so people are much more likely to get in trouble, to have outbursts, to be impulsive. There's problems around tolerance of stress, so if you think of stressful situations, and the emotional dysregulation. And there's problems about relationships as well. They tend to be a lot more extreme. So what resources are available in prison for people with mental health problems? There are some clinical, for instance, at Edinburgh, I think, has, has um, recently recruited 
a clinical psychologist to work in prison. But actual psychiatrists, um, so they'll not work full time in prison, but they are they oversee the patients that require um, psychiatric treatment. They will be um, supported by by prison officers as well. And so in every prison, there's something called a multidisciplinary mental health team. According to ex-prisoner Stephen Roger, the number of healthcare staff at Low Moss was typical of prisons across Scotland, and that during his period in prison from 2011 to 2016, there was one full-time mental health nurse, one part-time mental health nurse, and ten psychologists. They will be forensic psychologists whose job is about offender programmes, so like managing offending behaviour. They're not trained in mental health and they're not expected to deliver mental health interventions. Your mental health nurse will probably be quite isolated in that and probably spending most of their time dealing with medication and issuing of medication. Will have very little time to talk to people or get to know them. May have some training in psychological therapies but may not have the opportunity or the time to implement it with, with certainly the numbers in need. May not have access to supervision to talk about the work they're doing and get it reviewed. And we call that clinical governance, that you're delivering a therapy that's got an evidence base, in other words, the right therapy to the right person at the right time. I would argue more strongly um, that the people in prison who have everyday contact with prisoners are the prison officers. So, you know, that whole thing about um, recognising where someone might be vulnerable. So prison officers, you'll have four or five working in a team with maybe 60 uh, people in prison, 60 prisoners, and they will see them every day. And they have a key role to uh, identify. So they do training in mental uh, uh, mental health first aid. And if someone is um, considered at risk of self-harm or suicide, there'll, there'll be a support package. In 2011, the responsibility for the healthcare of prisoners was transferred from the Scottish Prison Service to the National Health Service. The reason that in 2011, the healthcare responsibilities were transferred to health boards from the Scottish Prison Service was because it was recognised there was a massive inequality, that there was great shortfalls in the health facilities available to prisoners. However, there's ongoing issues as there was very little existing resource. The resource has been transferred, but there's not been new funding for these services. Prisons had existing nursing staff, but often very small numbers, and GPs. They might have sessions coming in from a psychiatrist. They might have sessions from dentists. But when you looked at it, the provision was much less than if that person was living in the community. Plus, that population has really high needs for healthcare. So there were 13 prisons, and the healthcare responsibilities went to nine health boards. They basically were in the position of finding, say, they had a population of several hundred, people with very high health needs they were responsible for and they had a resource transferred across a, perhaps a few nurses or a bit of funding for some medical input but that hadn't met the needs before and wasn't going to meet the needs now and they need to look at how they were going to provide the services at a time when there's a lot of pressure in the health service and it's recognised that prisoners have equal rights as every other member of the population to healthcare but I don't think those needs are getting met. The Scottish Government has called for health inequality between marginalised communities and wider society to be addressed. Prisoners, by their definition, are marginalised. I'm aware that some health boards have been doing needs assessments 
in prisons about the health needs, they then have to find the resources to put in. And I think there's some resources going in, there's some clinical psychology posts being created, but they're small, you're talking small numbers, because there's not a lot of resource floating around at the moment. The findings seem to be that whilst prisoners on paper should be enjoying the same right of access to health care, whether it's mental or physical health, there was quite a lot of variation between the prisons and between the health boards, which meant that they effectively weren't getting parity of care. And if you look at the most recent inspection reports by the Chief Inspector of Prisons and by the independent monitoring boards, one of the most common complaints that comes up amongst prisoners is healthcare, access to healthcare, and getting adequate healthcare, waiting times, missed appointments, and so on. So there's a fairly consistent message that healthcare needs are not being adequately met in prison. We're not measuring the needs, we're not measuring what services people are receiving. We, they don't seem to be reporting, as far as I'm aware yet, to national targets around access and waiting times. I think it, it's inevitable that there would be difficulties, but there was no extra resources to meet the needs. So that's making progress a lot slower. You're bringing together two cultures, you're bringing together a service that's about custody and rehabilitation, to work more closely with the service that's about provision and identification of healthcare needs and treatment of those. You've two cultures, you've two systems, but there's also not a lot of people to do that. I don't think there's a coherent mental health strategy around the assessment and treatment of psychological problems, and that's a major issue for prisons. The Health and Support Committee looked into healthcare in prison. It did seem again from that report that sometimes responsibility was pushed each way um, and certainly the conclusion of the committee was that there needed to be a sort of overarching strategic plan to serve the healthcare needs of prisoners. Um, I mean, the committee was quite cutting in its final conclusion. It said that um, they felt that if there was a will, it was entirely possible to adequately meet the healthcare needs of prisoners. But what they said was that the will was, and I quote, conspicuous by its absence at senior management levels. Um, so that's fairly damning, really. Uh, there's a story there that it's not that... It's not possible to meet prisoners' healthcare needs in prison. It's that, one way or other, there doesn't seem to be the will to really achieve parity with the healthcare that you'd receive in the community. And the, the report, in its conclusions, called for a strategic plan to achieve parity within two years. And they didn't think it, that time really should be an issue. According to prison reform campaigners, women have been identified as a population with a higher than average incidence of poor mental health. My Freedom of Information request revealed a higher than average incidence of prisoners trying to hurt themselves at Cornton Vale, Scotland's largest women's prison. And you can't be involved with women in the criminal justice system without feeling that the, the prison system is so deeply inappropriate. Campaigners like Baroness Helena Kennedy are making sure that reform continues to be on the agenda. I did a lot of the women who ended up before the courts and I started noticing um, a whole set of things about them and largely that they were women who um, themselves were often um, women who had been, you know, the victims of crime, who had been battered and abused in their own lives, um, who, uh, who were before the courts as people with incredible social problems rather than as terribly heinous um, offenders. Um, and so um, that's why I've campaigned around the issue of women in prison. And, of course, I now have the great privilege of being part of the legislature because I'm in the House of Lords. 
Um, and, um, and so I speak on the issue in the House of Lords. I, I sat on the Joint Commission on Human Rights, and I've raised the issue there and in other places. And I've continued to write on the issue. Under plans unveiled by Justice Secretary Michael Matheson, a new small national prison with 80 places will be created, alongside five smaller community-based custodial units, each accommodating up to 20 women across the country. These units are due to be operational by 2020. The smaller community-based custodial units will provide accommodation as women serve out their sentence, with access to intensive support to help overcome issues such as alcohol, drugs, mental health and domestic abuse trauma, which evidence shows can often be a driver of offending behaviour. What I was pleased about was that there was some talk about setting up, some, building some new prison, Quantum Vale University, and it, was, and it was going to be a huge prison, and he decided, no, instead of building another huge mega prison, um, that you created, you know, you just decided to reduce the size of Quantum Vale. You only need a serious prison for a very small number of women, you know, women who, who do, you know, grievous bodily harm to people, who do attempt murder on people or who kill uh, somebody. There are uh, some women who do that, of course, just like men do. Um, and you need to have a proper place for them. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be... A it's not a serious number of people and what they worked out was that a prison like Quantum Vale needed only to have 80 places and that then you created small units which were much more like being a, a, you know in a, a hostile situation but a unit that was more like home but where there's a certain amount of freedom to come and go um, and to learn from the things that had worked. Chief Inspector David Strang has called for a presumption against sentences under 12 months. To say that, that nobody should be sent to prison for under a year is a great idea. What you have to prevent, though, is then um, judges deciding to give people more than a year um, because they don't know what to do with uh, the problem that's in front of them. You know, I mean, what you really need to do, it, along with saying nobody should be sent to prison for less than a year, you have to be saying, and these are a whole body of alternatives to imprisonment that are going to be introduced and resourced. And you, you create a community solution which is of real value and is going to try and address the behavioural problem. The government have recently consulted, uh, or earlier this year, consulted on the proposal to increase the presumption against short sentences uh, from the current three months, which is what the law is at the moment, um, and so they've consulted on what people think about uh, increasing the, uh, that the length of time that there should be a presumption against short sentences, and my submission to that says uh, that we should increase that to 12 months. So, th so the report of, of the Scottish Prisons Commission in 2008, Scotland's Choice, recommended that we should not send people to prison um, in general for less than six months, uh, sorry, less than 12 months, uh, and I uh, ag agree with that. So what we're waiting for at the moment is the government to respond to that consultation. Um, so uh, my understanding is that there'll be an announcement made uh, in the autumn once the, the recess is over. Um, stating what the, what the government's position is and, and obviously I'm hopeful that they will increase the, the presumption from the current three months uh, to 12 months. Well, I mean, the fact is, if you're sent to prison for six months or less, you are more likely than not to be reconvicted within a year of release. So if our goal is, is safer communities, we're, we're not making safer communities by sending people to prison for short periods because... If you send them for short periods, there's very little you can do with someone in prison when they're only there for a few months. Um, and all the mean and meanwhile, you've completely disrupted their lives by perhaps uh, losing them their housing, 
uh, their families, their their job and so on. And then, of course, they then carry the stigma of having been in prison, which makes it very difficult for them to get employment on release. So, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, perhaps not surprising that those who go to prison for short periods are in the category of being much more likely to re-offend than, than those who go for longer periods. So um, I think he's entirely right to be calling for that. And, and at the end of the day, the presumption is only a presumption that the, the language of the legislation is very permissive and it gives censors the ability to send someone to prison if they really believe that is the most appropriate punishment for them. In January of 2017, Liam Carr, 19, and Robert Wagstaff, 18, were pronounced dead at HMP Polmont, a Young Offenders Institute. A fatal accident inquiry has been launched and is currently underway. As a result, the authorities are unable to comment, but there remain ongoing issues with how authorities deal with deaths in custody. The FAI system, fatal accident inquiry system in Scotland, is, is, uh, is pretty deficient. I mean, at the start of this year, um, of the 121 um, deaths in prison that had occurred between the 1st of January 2012 and 31st of December 2016, um, only half of them have been subject to a fatal accident inquiry. So, I mean, every death in, in prison, every death in custody is a tragedy for the individual and for their family. And quite rightly, families and loved ones will want answers. They want to understand what led to their loved one's death. Was it something that was preventable? Um, but also for the likes of the prison service, if, they, if they're going to learn the lessons of what's happened following a death in custody, then that death needs to be properly investigated. And I mean, it's pretty appalling that uh, you know someone who may have lost their life in 2012 at the beginning of 2017 their family still doesn't have an answer to that contrast that with england and wales where the prison's ombudsman has 26 weeks in in which to report on a death in custody the deaths of the two young persons in Parliament are possibly suicide related there are known exacerbating factors that are associated with young offenders institutes that are likely to adversely affect the mental health of those in custody now way back to my time when I was classed as a young, young offender, there was always that element of bullying and intimidation for other, for other prisoners. And, and gang culture, again, is a, big, is a big, big problem, especially in Pullman. Not so much in your mainstream prisons, but in Pullman, this seems to be a big problem. If you're, no part, if, if you're from a certain area and you're no part of that gang, you're, you're seen as a weak link, so you're picked on. So if you've already come into prison, we met with health issues that have never really been addressed and you're at that young vulnerable age between 17 and 21. If you're coming from an outside environment where you've been under pressure or you've been bullied or you've been intimidated, then you've come into prison and experienced that again whilst in prison. It's easy to walk away from it when you're outside but it's no easy to walk away from it inside because you're in that closed environment. So when people see that you're weak and vulnerable, a lot of people prey on that. A lot of people use it for intimidation to take your canteen from you, to take your training shoes off you, to take your trackies, whatever. So Pullman's always had that element, and unless they can change that, that's going to continue for a long, long time. It's often that they've come from horrible backgrounds, and what they need is support and help, and, and in precisely the way that I'm talking about for the women. Places that used to be borstals, you know, but I mean now are young offenders institutions. And the, the levels of bullying were terrible. Um, and um, and bullying that between the prisoners um, and the kind of ways in which gangs operate within these places. And if you're in any way seen as vulnerable, you're, you're preyed upon. 
and um, and what what often happened was that you were seeing young offenders cutting themselves up, um, you know, um, self-harming because of the feelings of you know self-loathing and um, and you know just uh, their internal pain. You know, people only harm themselves and cut themselves when they're feeling pain. That's why I saw the, the, what was, be, was being planned with the women as being a, a pilot, which could be then um, replicated in, in England. I mean, it's terrible when um, people uh, end up going to prisons where they can hardly get visits because they're too far away from their families and all that. The idea that in Scotland that you had all these places, you know, sprayed around Scotland meant that people could maintain better contact with the people who, who you know, who might help them to get out of the the continuing sort of cycle of, of, of uh, going in and out of prison. Um, but the same is true of young people um, and what they need is intensive work done with them. So that's why I think that it would be, it could be possible to replicate it with, uh, with young offenders as well and then in turn with uh, male offenders who are there for less serious offending. Um, but particularly those who are there at the early stages of their a, a possible offending career so that it doesn't become the habit of it. There's absolutely no doubt that lots of the changes that we would advocate for women would be equally applicable to young offenders or, or men. Um, and indeed, we would advocate that you know there, there are many people, m male prisoners who are in prison for very short periods who probably ought not to be there either. So, which is why we are pushing for the presumption against short sentences to be um, increased to sentences of less than 12 months. And if you look at the responses to the government consultation, which closed in December 2015, that's more than 18 months ago, the majority of them supported increasing the presumption and uh, amongst that group, most of them are calling for it to be increased uh, right up to prison sentences of um, 12 months or less. So it's pretty disappointing that there has been no formal response from the government on that. Um, and my slight concern is that it's been kicked into the long grass because there's been nothing more on it since. Theresa Fife, the director of the Royal College of Nurses, said that if Scotland was serious about tackling healthcare inequality, then the healthcare of prisoners has to be at the forefront of open political debate. I spoke to political parties from across the political spectrum, including Liam MacArthur, the Liberal Democrat MSP for Orkney. I, I mean, I think this is one where, um, on mental health as a whole, uh, I think there's been a welcome um, recognition across the uh, across the piece politically. John Finney, who represents the Highlands and Islands in Parliament, said that the issue of access to mental health care was not solely confined to prisons, but a matter of great concern across the board. I think it would be a, a brave person that said that the, the, no one in prison would take their life again, no matter what steps you've put in place. But I think the physical environment must be as conducive, the uh, support that's there from staff must be conducive, and people should be able to, to have a third independent party to, to speak to and that's where the role for the NHS must be. The Greens Justice Minister MSP John Finney was adamant that it was also important to challenge the attitudes of some segments of society's perceptions of prisoners and prison life. The Labour MSP for West Calder Neil Finley shared a similar viewpoint. Yeah I mean I think in relation to um, prison suicide and, 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 and mental health I don't, I don't think you have to have been in prison to, un to, to have some grasp of how potentially 
that would affect anyone's mental health. I mean, it's it, it, you know depriving somebody of their liberty and putting them in putting them in a, 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 a situation where they're in prison and where you've got large numbers of people who have went through the same experience is hardly going to be the most positive thing for anyone's mental health. So it doesn't take it doesn't take too much to imagine how desperate a situation that is. So it seems there is a clear need to change the direction of the narrative when talking about prisoners in prison life, if further progressive change is going to take place. Why has this happened? And it's happened because the political parties from the early 90s started a Dutch auction of politicising um, law and order. And it became, we, we borrowed it from America, which is who's going to be tougher in dealing with crime? And we, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a very ugly um, thing that happened within our system. Instead of it being seen as a problem that we as society have, how do we deal with this? And that there was generally cross-party um, uh, positions on this. Instead, it became a Dutch auction as to who could be tougher. And um, I'm afraid New Labour entered into that Dutch, Dutch auction, um, um, showing that they could be as tough as the Conservatives. When something like that happens to you, it never leaves you and it never goes away. And if you put the position that I was in to relive that situation that happened many, many years ago, it does bring back a lot of concern, a lot of anxiety and stress. And that, and the build-up, and with my case being wrongly convicted, when I spoke to the counsellor and told her she went, that, that, is, that is PTSD you've suffered. I've heard from some of the most influential voices in Scottish politics and from some of the most marginalised. Reform is possible, and maybe for young offenders and men caught up in a cycle of crime, the solutions presented for female offenders might just be a more humane alternative. <laughs>